Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1969, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are four of my Black classmates, Jerry Secundi, Fred Easter, George Jones, and John Woodford. Also joined by classmates Gil Leaf, Bill Collins, Hampton Howell, Alden Briscoe, Mason Morfitt, Jeff Fox, Bay and Nick Bancroft, George Allen, Jay Pasikoff, Cindy Wardle, and Marcy Benstock. This episode is about civil rights leader and educator Bob Moses, who died four days ago. His was a life well lived. Here's an excerpt from one of his obituaries. In 1960, a young New York City math teacher named Bob Moses left his job and moved to Mississippi to join the fight for civil rights. There, he became one of the great unsung leaders of the movement that changed America. Moses was born and raised in a Harlem, New York housing project, the son of a custodian. A brilliant student, he was accepted to a prestigious public high school and later earned a master's degree and a Ph.D. from Harvard. While teaching in New York, the 25-year-old Moses was moved by images of people protesting across the South. He uprooted and moved to Mississippi, where he became the state field director for the famed Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organizing voter registration drives in poor rural areas, and leading the Freedom Summer of 1964. A quiet grassroots leader known for his bib overalls, Moses was a contrast in style to Martin Luther King Jr., who called Moses an inspiration. As a leader of the civil rights movement in the Deep South, Moses became a target of violence. He survived beatings and once was shot at by Klansmen. He left the country in 1966 in protest of the Vietnam War he'd been drafted into, working and starting a family in Tanzania. After returning to the U.S., Moses founded an organization called the Algebra Project to address what he viewed as a crisis of math illiteracy in poor urban and rural areas. The group is helping young students still today. Our guest is his daughter, Maisha Moses. So he always said that the country um, lurches forward and backward. And he, um, he had a sense of these waves moving in sort of 75 year periods of time, um, going back to the Civil War, you know, roughly 75 year periods of time. And so he felt that um, the 60s was one of those periods and that the country lurched forward. And what he often said at the end, near the end, was that you know it wasn't clear yet in this next lurch. He, he felt there was gonna be a lurch and it wasn't clear whether we were gonna lurch forward or lurch backward. So I think fundamentally, and again, this is, um, <laughs> everything I say comes from my dad, mostly. 
um, just listening to him over all these years. Um, some things are my own, but uh, you know, a lot of it is my dad's. Um, that the teachers are off the table for the country as the core strategy for um, improving education and ensuring that every child has a, has a quality education, that there isn't an agreement that the country needs teachers, that children need excellent teachers who are expert in the subject matter and who love all of their children and are compassionate and can relate to them. The country has no strategy for developing teachers. And so it uses proxies, um, it, uses, it uses accountability as a proxy for teachers, it uses um, leadership, investment in leadership and entrepreneurship mm -hmm. as a proxy for teachers. And so that's like roughly um, the, the voucher movement and the charter school movement, all of that is sort of wrapped up in this idea of leadership and, and entrepreneurship. He, he contended, and I, I agree with him, that you know children need teachers. Um, but there's no there's no agreement, you know, and, and you think he um, he wants they they interviewed him on CNN and the the initiative that the country is um, most proud of, or at least it was at the time, this was a number of years back was Teach for America. Um, so he was on CNN and they asked him about Teach for America. And I think they were very excited, you know, <laughs> about what he was going to say. And he said, Teach for America is a policy abomination. Um, so it's, it's a de-investment in teachers. You know, what he said is that Teach for America gets great young people. Um, but it's not preparing a teaching force that's really digging in mm -hmm. and sticking and staying. And the idea that um, a two month training program is a substitute mm -hmm. for, you know, a serious academic and pre-service, you know, preparation. And part of the problem is that the pre-service preparation needs to be overhauled. Like there's so much work to do in pre-service preparation, um, but it's not a substitute. And, and one of the moves that Teach for America made because when they were first started their, um, their um, assertion was that um, because they would recruit such talented young people who were very passionate and who would work very hard and who would build these relationships with these, with these students, that they would do better than the traditional teaching force. And the data did not play that out in the initial years of Teach for America. And so to justify um, the continuing major, I mean, huge investment um, from private funding, from federal, national you know, funding, um, they, 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 they switched in part, you know, they said, we're still, you know, of course doing teaching, but that not only are we doing that, but we're preparing great leaders for the future that these young people who come through Teach for America, because they will have had these experiences in poor and minority communities, when they go off and do whatever they do in leadership and have positions of power and influence, they will have 
a more grounded and broader experience to inform their leadership, right? And that's how we will get change. Um, so, but still the kids need teachers, you know, whether or not that plays out and that is actually happening, the, the, the students, they, they need teachers. And the high tech people would have people believe that, you know, robots and computers can replace teachers. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the attempt to have, create teacher proof curriculum and everybody yeah. on page four in chapter three on Tuesday <clears throat> was nuts and a total failure. And all it did is keep anybody with a creative mind out of teaching. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was doing the algebra project, this was in the 90s. And um, I was traveling around the country and supporting teachers and training teachers. And um, it was hard to get teachers to 100% commit to the algebra project curriculum, which is not teacher proof, right? It requires a lot of understanding of the math, um, flexibility and creativity. Um, it was not open up on this day to page four, you know, as Gail said. Um, and so teachers would hop in and out of the algebra project. And one teacher just laid it out there in a way that um, helped me deepen my understanding and also was just heartbreaking in a way and led me to understand that in some senses, teachers are just as um, disempowered as the students. So she said, I know what I'm doing doesn't work. I know this other stuff does not work but it's too much of a risk to do the algebra project because I don't have the, like if it fails, right? She was trying it for the first time, if it fails and I don't have the support of my principal of the superintendent of the community, then my job is on the line. So, I mean, imagine this is your profession and these are children and their lives and you come to work every day and you do what you know does not work. So like teachers are forced to make a choice between their own self-preservation and their students' success, which is, uh, you know, that's just a horrible place to be. Well, one thing about uh, Dr. Comer's work, he had a thousand schools and they did work, but it was because the teachers were partnered with people who really were expert in child development and met the kids and understood that poverty was traumatic and that you had to deal with those things. Uh, and um, so there, but at the same time, there was a lack of control of budgets, of superintendents of schools, and also politically oriented school boards. Um, and then the charter movement got largely corrupted by the for-profits mm -hmm. um, and, and were no longer nonprofit public programs. Mm -hmm. And we now have, for instance, at Harvard, three black deans. And I talked to the Dean of Education and she's talking about getting together with the School of Social Work and, and public health to start to think about me creating a special program for teachers who are going to work with kids in poverty, which is what you're saying that there has to be deep expertise, but 
you need to take the psychological needs, social needs of the child into account. Comer always said that every child is curious by nature. And if you can deal with all their developmental needs, the, uh, they will do, and their health, um, you know, you have to have breakfast, uh, you can succeed. And quite frankly, I ran, I was the principal of a school in Detroit and we had no money and everybody was on scholarship, even though it was a private school run largely inspired by the Quakers. Um, we got all our kids to college and they all had to have a scholarship, but you have to start at three years old uh, and hear vocabulary words and get nutrition and, uh, and love, long-term relationship with caring adults. So it can be done and it's been proven, but we need to put all the pieces together and have economic independence at the local level. It's gotta be bottom up and community owned. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. No, Gil. Back to your phone. <laughs> this is Gary. Uh, let me just add on to what you were saying. I'm on the board of a small charter school called uh, <clears throat> El Jardín de la Infancia, and we basically deal with the sons and daughters of undocumented immigrants. We bring them in in kindergarten and first grade. We only have those two years. They speak no English. By the time they're through the first grade, they are fluent. We then transfer them over to Brentwood, and my good friend George Allen would know about Brentwood, a very fancy area yeah. in Los Angeles. And they go into the Brentwood schools. And we've been doing it long enough now that some of them have now graduated from high school and gone into college. So again, local control, if you like. Yep. And we've been very good about doing that. We are definitely nonprofit, I can assure you. So we're not making any money out of this. Well, also the black economic power is extensive now nationally. But it's always been the white community has always made sure it was separated and couldn't come together in to to meet the needs. And I've always said it takes a child to make a village whole. Everybody's got it upside down. <laughs> the power is in the child and the potentiality. And that's the only thing that can get us all to come together. Well, Maisha, could you tell us in, in, in short how 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 the algebra program works? I mean, conceptually and um... Yeah, so um, I, when I think of the algebra project, I, I think of it as having three lives. So the first life was in the 80s and 90s, leading up to about 2000. And then the next life was from about 2000 to 2015, roughly. And then this third phase started in about you know, 2015, 2016. Um, so the first phase was about helping um, middle school students, ensuring that middle school students were able to take algebra by the eighth grade and developing a curriculum that ended up getting used. It was initially designed as a sixth grade curriculum, but teachers found that it needed to be expanded and used, you know, sixth, seventh, and sometimes even into eighth grade. And the curriculum, um, it was where my father um, invested and applied his doctoral study work at Harvard. And he was um, in the philosophy program and looking at the philosophy of math. And so his application of his work in philosophy to um, learning really 
elementary algebra um, was what um, really drove the first phase of the algebra project's work because what he discovered um, when he came into my classroom in the eighth grade and you know started working with me and then started working with subsequent groups of students was that um, the metaphors that students have about number that they've been developing, you know, up through sixth and seventh grade that are deeply ingrained, they break down and they're not useful for algebra. So the main metaphors about number um, are that they answer questions related to how much and how many. And then algebra introduces these um, new numbers called integers and that integers actually answer questions not only about how much and how many, but also about which way, which direction. And so that if you could, which is every child under, you know, at that understands which way and which direction, right? So, but it's not, their concepts about direction are not attached to their concepts about number. And so if you could create experiences and a process, right, a process of students documenting those experiences, um, learning mathematical syntax um, to express or represent those experiences, then you could link um, everyday concepts that children, um, that are very meaningful to children to these abstract mathematical concepts that are not. And so um, that was the first phase. And so, you know, typically, algebra and um, arithmetic by that time, um, students are learning formulas and rules and memorizing them and just, you know, applying them to a whole bunch of problems and doing a whole bunch of problems and meaning is lost. Um, and so for teachers, it means teaching very, very differently, um, really spending time, like um, the grounding experience for um, this idea of an integer and how to bring movement into number was the kids took a ride, a, a trip on the, on the train line. Like this was the early days in Cambridge, they would take a ride on the T and everything is there to, ab to um, abstract a model of the number line, right? You ride a certain number of stops in a certain direction, right? You take a trip, it has a start, it has a finish. And so what you get is actually an experience that when you abstract it, um, helps you understand what a vector is, right? And can help you understand what an integer is and what it means to um, subtract negative integers, right? To compare the positions of these two integers. So he's the, 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 the curriculum um, spent a lot of time just sort of step by step by step building up these ideas, but grounding them in, in kids' experiences. And so that was incubated in Cambridge for about five years from like 83, um, actually like 85 to 80, um, 89 or so. And then that went out across the country um, to... I don't know, in its heyday, maybe like 25 school districts around the country. 
and middle schools were working on um, how to get the community to buy into the idea that every child should have algebra by the eighth grade and that the community should support this in the school, but then also how to work with teachers to get them to change their practice so that the, you know, the, the math could be meaningful. Um, and so I think that the, the significance of his work there, um, I think the way math is taught is, a, um, is an artifact of the industrial age and that it works pretty much for 10, maybe 15% of the population, um, irrespective of background. And that if we're gonna be serious about mathematics as a broad literacy, right? For citizenship, for every person, um, we need to figure out a different way of, of teaching it um, so that people are literate for the 21st century. We need a new 21st century standard. And that still is an open question. My dad was very much ahead of the curve on that question, but it's still an open question. Um, so that was the first phase. And then the second phase, um, starting in about 2000, maybe 97, 98, roughly, um, my dad had started going back to Mississippi in the 90s and uh, working with a group of students while they were in seventh and eighth grade because they, um, they had a, an amazing sixth grade teacher who just turned them on. <laughs> and, um, but they didn't have great seventh and eighth grade teachers to pick them up and continue moving them forward. And they distinguished themselves because um, when it became clear near to the end of the sixth grade year, that they weren't gonna have enough time during the school day to finish all of the algebra project materials. All of the kids agreed to stay after school every day for about two months, the last two months of school to finish the algebra project. And so that really got my dad's attention. And he had been looking for a place to try to develop the next set of materials and he was very committed to this idea that the materials be developed with the students. You know, the traditional model, the typically the materials are developed in universities, um, you know, divorced from the actual classroom practice and reality. And so all of his materials were developed on the ground. And so that the that was an opening for him to start thinking about seventh and eighth grade materials, but also to ensure that these students um, were carried forward. And it was actually those students that ended up starting YPP when they were in the eighth grade. Um, so that, the next, that phase, that kicked off the second phase, which was, um, high school, looking at high school, because when they, those students left eighth grade, he followed them into high school and they went, they were going to Lanier High School um, in Jackson and he became their algebra teacher. And then of course um, he had other students too, um, who were new to him. All right. So, um, so the school, the high school asked him to work, take up a whole course, you know, a whole section 
um, of algebra of algebra one, not just the algebra project students. And so he started. Um, so this, let me make sure I get this right. So what he said is that he would be willing to do that if they gave him the students who were in the bottom quartile, so the lowest performing students, and that those students would have to um, double up on math. So they would have to work every day on block schedule instead of every other day on block schedule. And that uh, they would need to stay together, not just for one year, but to continue to stay together as a cohort. And so that launched the second phase of the algebra project, this idea of high school cohorts. So students who are landing in ninth grade who are three, four, five years behind, um, maybe even six years behind some of them in terms of their performance level and figuring out um, working with mathematicians, so working with research mathematicians, and over the years, he attracted a handful, maybe about five or six mathematicians around the country who were looking at um, what would it mean to use the algebra projects process of developing grounding metaphors and making sure the math is um, grounded in the student's experience, but which is um, rich and meaningful mathematics and which addresses the high school curriculum so that it would accelerate the students and not remediate the students. And so over the next um, 10 to 12 years or so, um, he focused on that work and the algebra project focused on that work and um, developed a set of materials that in terms of their alignment with the high school standards, I think effectively cover the first two years of, of high school, ninth and 10th grade, although they had materials that also carried forward into 11th and 12th grade, but there's a, there's a disconnect between um, the high school expectations and you know, what, what university mathematicians think that you know, students need and what is important to carry you forward. Um, and of course that plays out in um, college remediation rates. So like Cal, I know California's statistics best, um, but other, it, it happens all over the place, but the just the incredibly high rates of math remediation at college. So I think until um, recently, California did away, completely did away with remediation in the math courses in the Cal State system. Um, I was out there last year and the governor, you know, had signed that into law. And so the, 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 the professors were figuring out like, how are they gonna teach college students math? Ba really algebra, right? Basic math. Um, but across the state, 50% on average were remediating math in college across the state. And when you looked at um, schools like Cal State Santo Domingo and Cal State LA and East LA that were, you know, 80 to 90% um, Latinx or African-American, it was like 80 to 90% of those students were remediating math 
in college. So, and this is the top third of the high school population, right? The top third of the talent is going into the, the Cal State system and 50% of them are remediating math. So, the, I mean, it's a big, huge question. It's a big problem for the country. And I've, um, I've read some of the, the, the articles about, about my dad and I think, you know, they've just done a really wonderful job. It's, it's been amazing, but the math story is, um, the narrative around the math story is that he developed a math program for low-income students. Um, and yes, his focus is on black, children, right? Like that is the, the passion of his life and his focus and, and poor children, black children and poor children. We, we've done some work in um, low-income, poor rural white communities. Um, and, but because that was his focus, doesn't mean that the issue that he was trying to address was about at the core um, on the math side, it wasn't just about freedom for, for, for black and brown and poor children, but it was also just really thinking deeply about what does it mean for this country to have a math education that produces people in, in general, people who are mathematically literate. So that was the second phase of his work. So you're at the third phase now? Yeah. Um, so just one note about that second phase, it was supported by a number of grants from the National Science Foundation um, to look not only at the materials and the efficacy of the materials, but the efficacy of the model. Um, so the third phase was, and the National Science Foundation has been an institution that has supported the algebra project over the years. Um, They've, the Algebra Project has been successful, you know, in getting grants through the National Science Foundation. So in 2015, um, the Algebra Project learned about, actually it was 2016, they learned about a new um, program that the National Science Foundation had called NSF Includes, and Includes is an acronym for something, but it's basically about broadening participation in STEM. And the president of the National Science Foundation at that time elevated this program, um, NSF includes to it's one of its top 10 big ideas um, that, the, that the question of diversity in STEM was of fundamental importance to the well being and security of the country. And that even though um, after all these years of the National Science Foundation trying to um, promote broadening participation in STEM as a requirement of all of its education funding, certainly. Um, they felt like they hadn't really put a dent in the problem and that the problem was too big and too complex to have a strategy that focused on funding brilliant solutions or brilliant people, that you needed an investment um, and you needed a strategy that focused on collective impact and alliance building. And so they wanted to try to build a body of knowledge around and research around what does it take to do collective impact and alliance building focused on broadening participation in STEM. And so the algebra project applied and YPP was part of that. We were one of the you know, founding organizations in that application. 
and received a, a pilot award. They were funding um, a fairly large number of pilot or medium number of pilots. Um, and they called them design and development launch pilots of um, coalitions of organizations that wanted to um, demonstrate how they were gonna structure their work around this idea of being, being an alliance. And so my dad felt that the algebra project's roots in the, the civil rights movement and especially the Mississippi theater of the civil rights movement um, was the, the sort of intellectual basis and experiential basis for talking about how the algebra project throughout its years um, was grounded in this idea of alliance building that that was sort of his first um, experience of alliance building and that that had informed how the algebra project had grown and developed over the years. Um, this idea of investing in local um, capacity and leadership and building up local institutions and a network that would support those institutions and groups to work together rather than building up a large central organization. So the algebra project has remained very lean over the years. You know, now they're down to three staff people. Um, they were four. Um, but so they've been able to do all of this work because um, my dad has really carried forward this idea that he got from Ella Baker of um, working and building in an organizing mode. And so you create things that you don't become the leader of um, and you look for um, opportunities to create structures to enable leadership to, to emerge and develop from the ground up. Um, that grant with the National Science Foundation launched um, what the Algebra Project called the We the People Math Literacy for All Alliance. And it was what my dad was working on um, up till the end. Um, and he would say, <laughs> you know, and I was just um, privy to, you know, like a few sentences here and there of this conversation. But he would say, well, the algebra project is doing the alliance, you know, that um, that's really what we're doing now. We're doing the alliance. And so they were evolving and shifting um, to focus on building the alliance and not so much trying to directly um, develop programs on the ground. Um, and when it came to thinking about funding the alliance, because the National Science Foundation, you know, they have their... Um, they have their pot of money. And so, as I said, they funded a number of pilot programs. And then I think to date, they have only funded maybe five, maybe three full-blown alliance grants, which were like multi-million dollar grants. Um, and the, the We the People Alliance applied for one and, and didn't get it. And so this question of, well, how to fund this alliance building work um, and so where my dad um, sort of ended up and what he was doing um, on Friday, um, what is Friday? What is the date? 25, 24, 23, July 23rd um, was on a meeting, you know, close to the end. He, he always said he was going to go with his boots on. Um, and so... <laughs> 
So he did. Um, and he had been able, he had the energy for a hand, you know, just a little bit of meeting. Um, but he had a meeting on Friday and he was working with some of the folks in the Alliance about this idea of direct federal investment in local schools um, and local communities. And so thinking about like, where are the funds to support this work at scale? Um, and I remember him saying, he said, you know, like the schools don't have the money and the states don't have the money that the feds have the money. Um, so that was the, that was the third phase and here we are. Have you worked with the uh, historic black colleges and universities with any success in terms of? So Dave, you know, Dave Dennis, um, Dave Dennis and, and my dad um, sort of co, they were um, partners in crime in Freedom Summer. Um, they were co-directors. <laughs> and um, they hooked back up. Oh gosh, I want to say it was at either the 25th, 25th anniversary gathering of Freedom Summer. Um, and it's such a beautiful story. And I think Dave tells some of it in the beginning of Radical Equations, but they, they got up er in the morning, early, every morning across this three or four day period of this gathering and just told each other their life stories, you know, since they had seen each other before um, back in 65. And so my dad said he was working on the, the algebra project, which he was by then. And, um, you know, Dave was like, algebra, you know, what, what, why? Um, but by the end of those three days, Dave had come to understand that this was where he wanted to focus the rest of his life's work. And so, and he came to understand that this was a continuation of the life's work. Um, and it sort of goes back to the question of, you know, the, the, the algebra project tries to link political freedom with economic freedom. Um, and he, they both felt, I think many of them felt that they had left the work in Mississippi unfinished. So Dave, he was living in Louisiana at the time and he moved his family from Louisiana to Mississippi and he established the Southern Initiative of the Algebra Project. And Dave is very Southern. And over the years, you know, the Southern Algebra Project has tried to work with the Northern Algebra Project. And Dave decided he does not go above the Mason-Dixon line. Um, <laughs> but he... <laughs> He has really dug in with, with the HBCUs and he has a deep relationship with the HBCUs around um, through the work of the Southern Initiative of the Algebra Project going back, you know, like 20 years. If I may interject, Maisha. Yes. Uh, the dad came uh, at my invitation to talk to the Mesa staff and one of the things he said that I remember best was in the 60s, we felt that voting was the key to citizenship. Here in the 90s, we feel that algebra is the key to citizenship. If you don't take algebra and pass it by the eighth grade, you will never work 
for more than minimum wage. Hmm. Wow. Yes. You said it better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. That's unquote. <laughs> so does that mean that in Jackson now perhaps uh, the um, we the people I see on YouTube there's your father talking in 2017 about a national alliance on we the people is that how does that relate to young people's project um i'm just looking for like if we wanted to have a project we could support how do we find which one is the grassroots where we could contribute to it and watch it and nurture it which one of those organizations jackson has a black mayor who was very, um, uh, he's kind of linked with Newark's uh, Baraka's son. Uh, you know, they do a lot of stuff in the cities and using the power of their governments to try to achieve things. So maybe that's the place we could look. I don't know. We just need some guidance from you, I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe to the first part of your question, what is the connection to the Young People's Project? Was that you, did you ask that first? Did I hear that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as I said earlier, YPP grew out of the Algebra Project. So those eighth grade students, you know, those students who drew my dad to Mississippi when they were eighth graders, um, they, they fell in love with our brothers, um, Omo and Taba. And um, my dad had invited Omo and Taba um, down to Mississippi. And um, Omo was trying to figure his stuff out because he, um, his basketball dreams of becoming a professional basketball player <laughs> were, um, were dying. And he was playing at, at George Washington and studying at George Washington. And so he was looking for a place to sort of find himself. And so he accepted my dad's invitation to come to Mississippi. Um, and um, Taba, um, school never like really worked for Taba. And my dad talked about it a bit in, in Radical Equations. Um, so my dad was trying to keep Taba very close and um, provide opportunities for him to connect to the work um, to maybe you know, help him as he was you know, navigating his path. And so Omo and Taba um, came down to Mississippi and they were these really, really, really cool, cool guys from, from Cambridge. And um, they just dug in with these students, you know, they, they worked with them in the classroom, they hung out with them after school and played basketball. Um, they had sleepovers, you know, like all of the weekend, they just like grabbed these students up. And Dave, Dave Dennis, he talks about how Omo would, um, on the weekends, he would take his bike and go riding around the neighborhood and like visiting all the kids at home and just checking in with them. And um, so they fell in like they they fell in love with each other and and they made family. And um, my dad had been saying to them, um, "Well, the young people need to get their act together," and just repeatedly saying that. And 
partly what he was saying, you know, he had decided that he wasn't going to establish a youth wing of the algebra project. Um, and he was carrying forward the idea um, from Mississippi that the people most directly affected um, by the problem need to be at the center of the problem solving. And so, you know, in voting in Mississippi in the 60s, that was the sharecroppers. And so their work was around organizing sharecroppers and in schools and education, that's the students. Um, and so he was messaging that, um, that they were essential to this struggle and that they needed to get their act together so they could organize themselves so they could figure out to, how to do something um, about what they were experiencing. And so out of that sort of um, nexus of forces and relationships and experiences, um, YPP was born. And I think for the students, um, what they experienced in the algebra project was so powerful. And what they consistently talk about is that they learned about themselves. They learned a lot of math. They learned a lot about how to learn, but mostly they learned about themselves and who they were and that they could be something to each other. Um, and so their experience was rich enough that they were able to like own and harness a little piece of it and carry it into the after school space and the out of school time space. And they started um, developing workshops that they would um, do an after school programs and also workshops even that they would teach teachers like they were teaching teachers how to use the graphing calculator. Um, and so that was really the, the beginning of, of the Young People's Project. That was the seed. And it, it still is um, this idea of slightly older students teaching slightly younger students mathematics in a way that's grounded in relationship building and um, physical experiences and games and activities. I think what they brought to the mix because their children is play. Um, the algebra project had elements of play in it, um, but the young people's project really centers play um, without compromising on, on the mathematics. Um, and so, YPP, um, we're now operating, um, we've had to figure out, you know, and it's been a struggle um, to figure out how to be sustainable. Um, and so we have, there's a funding ecosystem that supports our work in Greater Boston. And in recent years, we've deepened relationships with school districts um, such that they've even invited us for instance, like at one high school to have an elective class in the high school. Um, they've invited us in Boston to be a co-partner on their future teacher program. Um, and so that's where we're directly involved most deeply in implementing programs. And then the other place is here in Broward County. And this is really um, why my dad was here in Florida. He's been, um, probably most active in terms of on the groundwork in Florida over the last 10 years. Um, and we have a great relationship along with the Algebra Project. 
um, in Broward County. And we actually just got, and this that's another great story, but we just got a, um, a Gates grant um, to do a year long pilot study in Broward County in, um, for YPP. And I can, I can say a little bit more about that later. Um, but we don't have anything in Jackson. We weren't able, we, we, we never got local money to support the work in Jackson. Um, the money that supported the work in Jackson always came from other places. And um, after a while, it just wasn't sustainable um, because the money we were getting had more and more restrictions on it. Um, but I was, I was talking last night actually um, to Sammy My Sam Myers, and he was one of my dad's first students in Mississippi. Um, and Sam ended up, um, he actually left school in the ninth grade, but he, he always stayed connected to, to the algebra project and to YPP and worked with YPP like on through, you know, when he would have even been a college student. And he ended up getting his GED. Um, but he said my dad always told him to let him know when he got it all together. And uh, so he called and he said, part of the reason I'm calling is because, you know, I told dad that I would let him know when I got it all together. And he said, I did, you know, I, I got it all together. But what he got, and he talked about how, you know, my dad used to go and pick him up at his house to take him to school in the morning um, and those kinds of things. And the idea that um, it wasn't just about math, it was about taking care of, of each other um, and being taken care of. And that in addition to that, he learned how he learned that he had a learning difference. And through the algebra project, he learned that he could learn and also what he needed to learn. And he was able to translate that into his own life um, and leadership in the community, but then also with his children and helping his children learn how to learn and use what he learned in the algebra project um, to, to make sure that they weren't um, pushed and shuttled into the same tracks that he had been pushed and shuttled into. Um, and so I don't know if I have like an immediate answer to your question. I think that's a wonderful idea. Like, is there a place where you can put your arms around? Um, I think Jackson would be a wonderful place. And I think that, um, you know, my dad's past actually, um, on, on Saturday, people, some people called in, you know, and were able to talk to him because he could still hear, um, even though he wasn't able to talk. So my brothers were on the phone with him and they started calling some of the kids in Mississippi. And then, you know, one person would call in and then they would call somebody else. And then the next person would call in and they would call somebody else. So they said that, um, I was talking to Kiki, he said, there were like 30 of us on the phone talking to your dad. <laughs> and I was so mad. I was like, y'all didn't call me. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe there's some energy there and you're right that the mayor there is very, very progressive. Um, but the, and Dave is working in Jackson. 
and Dave would like to have YPP, you know, work with him and Jackson. And, but those young people who are now, you know, in their late thirties, 40, mid thirties, and who have recognized who and what they've become because of their experiences. Um, I think there may be some of them who would really be ready and able to try to anchor something on the ground. Um, but it would require talking to them and talking together and thinking about what's doable. And maybe Dave Dennis would be the one to check with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'd like to thank you for coming on. It's really been great. Thank you for inviting me. It's the most fun I've had in a long time. <laughs> okay. Maisha, I'd like to come visit you at Central Square and uh, talk about money. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that would be great. And I think maybe, you know, and we, yeah, we need to talk and then maybe Broward County is a good place. Yeah, I, I, that could, where in Broward County, what town, towns are most engaged? Um, so the schools are spread out. Um, it's Hallandale, Coconut Creek, Lauderdale Lakes. Uh -huh. Broward County is the sixth largest school district in the country. Wow. <laughs> uh, and it's, and of this district, um, these kinds of districts, the, the chief academic officer was telling me it's the only one that is still a unified district. And there's pressure in part to break it up, right? Because you have rich towns and poor towns um, and people want to divorce themselves. But for now, it's one whole unified district, but it's huge. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bob Moses, dead at age 86. One of my classmates, George Allen, says that after meeting Bob Moses in 1964, the trajectory of his life changed. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. Thank you.